Well, good morning. I'm Bill. I'm one of the pastors here, and let me add my welcome. It is great that we are able to to feel the joy of worshiping together again. As we come to this text, would you pray with me? God, our Father, we are grateful people that we have been able to gather, that we are able to celebrate, that we are able to come to your word now. And so we pray together that you would lead us in that word. To your glory and to our good, we pray it and we pray it in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. Amen. So the 2004 cult classic movie, Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon's grandmother, who's been raising him, has to go into the hospital from a broken bone in a bike accident. And so she asks Uncle Rico to come and take care of Napoleon and Kip. Now, if you have not seen Napoleon Dynamite, Uncle Rico is almost the film stereotype of the immature adult. Rico was the high school football star who then managed to drop the winning pass in the key game, lost his popularity, dropped out of high school, gave up his dream of playing in the NFL, and instead of growing up and moving on, is mired and stuck in a perpetual adolescence. He lives in his orange Santana van. He spends his days taking videos of himself throwing footballs, and then later in the movie basically pursues get-rich-quick schemes. And I don't know about you, Uncle Rico's funny? but he's sad and he's frustrating and he's everything that ought not be. I mean, nobody watches Napoleon Dynamite and comes out and says, when I grow up, I want to be Uncle Rico. That just doesn't happen to you in the movie. And, And he shows us something actually important about the Christian life and that's that age doesn't mean maturity. Uncle Rico's got plenty of age, but somehow he's never become the maturity that he needs to have. And as a result, whether you think he's funny, which he is, whether you think he's sad, which he is, whether you find him just flat out irritating, which I do, the movie mocks Uncle Rico more than anybody. And when we think about something that's funny in a movie, it's not so funny in real life. And in this passage, Paul gives us Two pictures in the last couple verses, verse 13 and 14, one picture of maturity, one picture of immaturity. Look at verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, or verse 14, then we will no longer be, here's the alternate picture, infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Which would you rather be? Would you rather be a spiritual Uncle Rico or would you rather be the image of Christ? I mean, I'd rather have the second and I dearly hope you would too. How do we get it? And Ephesians 4 answers that question and that's our point this morning. We gain maturity in Christ when all of us together are using the gift Christ's given us. We gain maturity in Christ when all of us, each one of us, when we are together using the gifts that Christ has given us. And to unpack that this morning, we're really just going to look at two points. 
We're going to look at what Christ gave, and we're going to look at why Christ gave it, the what and the why. But just to make sure it's a little more complicated than that, we're going to ask four questions as we go along. So before we jump into the first point, it might help to get a sense of sort of Paul's flow of thought in Ephesians 4. If you work on Ephesians 4, you realize that for the first six verses, what David and Rob preached at our two sites last week, Paul's been talking about the unity of the church, a unity of the church in both love and doctrine. Paul talks about one faith, one Lord, one baptism. It's all about what ties us together. But now in verse 7 and going all the way to verse 16, what we'll look at today and then what Rob will lead us through next week, Paul pivots to talk about the diversity of the church, about the differences that are also part of the church. And we remind ourselves with that that unity is not the same thing as uniformity. That in the Christian life, unity is not the same thing as uniformity. We are all part of one body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, but we are not all identical carbon copies of each other. We think differently. We feel differently. We have different skin. We dress differently. We like different kinds of music, that the unity of the church does not mean that Christians are a mass-produced, identical product that all look the same, act the same, feel the same, anything else. No, quite the same. We are a unity precisely in our diversity. Um, Here's maybe the controlling way that would work as an example of how to think about this. Have you ever heard a really good barbershop quartet sing? Now, if you haven't, maybe a really good chamber group but you can really hear it in a really great barbershop quartet. You have one song, but you have four parts. And the bass is not the tenor, is not the baritone, etc. Each person has his own part to sing in that quartet, but they sing one song together. And the song works precisely in the unity of these four distinct parts. But something even more amazing happens in a really great barbershop quartet. If they hit their chord exactly right, if each person sings his note, his part exactly where it ought to be, suddenly, and it's a trick of the ear and the way the overtones combine, you start to hear a fifth voice. A fifth voice joins the quartet, a voice that's none of those people who's actually singing, and it happens only if they sing their part exactly the way they're supposed to. And that's actually a really good analogy for what Paul's thinking of in the church here. When we think about the church, it's really hitting its point when each person has his or her own role. Each person has his or her job. They sing their part perfectly. And when we each do that, suddenly people start to hear a fifth voice in the quartet. Might I even say they might start to hear God. And so as we think about this text this morning... How is it that we have a diversity of gifts with a unity of purpose? Well, Paul says two points. At least we're going to look at it that way. Point number one, what Christ gave. And you really see this from verses 7 to 11 in our text. Now, when you look at verse 7, look at what Paul says here. Well, actually, maybe we should say this first. We really want to think about what Christ gave under two categories. We want to think about the giver and we want to think about the gift. So there are two subpoints here. Because if you really want to understand a gift, one of the first things we need to do is understand him or her who gave it. I mean, a crayon drawing means everything when your kid gives it to you. It means something very different if your boss hands it to you. 
So first, let's start about what the giver. And look at verse 7 in our text. In verse 7, Paul writes, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now that's a kind of peculiar use of the word grace compared to the way we normally hear it. So let's make sure we know what Paul means. Normally in our context, if I say grace, what we mean is the grace of God that forgives our sins. And when we use grace in that normal sense, it's incredibly important to say that that grace is true no matter what. And that it is equal for all believers. We have to be ready to fight for the fact that no matter what the sin is, when we come in repentance to Christ as Lord and Savior and put it down at the foot of the cross, Christ forgives that sin. There's not this category or these three categories of sins that Christ wouldn't forgive and these that he will. That's not the way it works. Grace that saves us from our sins is equal for all believers. But what's Paul talking about here in verse 7 isn't that concept. If you look at verse 7, it's apparently a different use of the word. In fact, a grace that's apportioned differently, Paul says, to each believer. This is not actually the grace that saves us. This is the grace to actually go and carry forth and build the church. And you you notice even verse 7, he starts with the word but. Because he's now moving from our unity in the gospel, verses 1 to 6, to the counterpoint, our diversity in individual gifts. John Stott likes to talk about this as the difference between saving grace, which is universal for every person, everyone who has come to Jesus, and serving grace, what Paul's talking about here, which is portrayed and given differently to each believer. And before we go on, you know this is true in normal life, right? Some people are just better at math than others are. Some people just have a better fastball than others do. Some people are better sales personalities. In normal life, you know that different people have different gifts at different things. Well, why would you expect it to suddenly be completely different in the church? In fact, Paul says it's not. When it comes to serving grace, Christ apportions differently to each believer the gifts he has given us. And then Paul goes a little bit further into the nature of the giver. Look at verses 8 to 10. Paul, of all the things that he might say in this context, decides to quote Psalm 68, verse 18. When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, if you were to go back in your Bible and read Psalm 68, it's kind of a long psalm, so don't try to do it right now you'd see that the psalmist starts with the exodus, with God the victor who has conquered Pharaoh and all the so-called gods of Egypt and has led his people out in a victory march out of Egypt through the desert to the promised land. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. The psalmist then takes that image of the victory march out of Egypt and applies it in the second half of the psalm to God's ark coming to the temple when David brought the ark to the temple. And the victory march out of Egypt sort of reaches a bigger march as God himself, so to speak, in the ark of the covenant is brought and enthroned in the temple in Jerusalem with all God's people marching and celebrating in a train behind him. Well, now Paul takes that image and goes one step further and applies that to Christ's ascension from the dead up to heaven to rule at the right hand of God. 
because those two marches out of Egypt and to the temple pale in comparison to Christ himself having conquered all the principalities and powers, having conquered Satan, having conquered death itself, ascending to reign on high with all his captives in his train. Paul implicitly says this is where Psalm 68 has always been pointing. But there's a challenge here. You probably don't notice it, but let's call it out for a second. If you were to flip back to Psalm 68 and read verse 18, you'd find one very noticeable difference between the psalm verse and what Paul quotes here. Here's the difference. In the psalm, almost certainly your translation is going to say receiving gifts from men. But what does Paul say here? If you look at it, he says giving gifts to men. Well, what gives there? What's the difference? Um, Forgive me, we're going to geek out on this for a second. We're going to let the Semiticist kind of do his thing, but with a purpose, I pray. Because it's easy to see things like this and then hear allegations and think, oh, Paul doesn't know what he's doing. Or Paul's changing what the psalmist said, or Paul's playing fast and loose with it. So for just a second, let's explain this just to illustrate to ourselves that there's probably something far more profound going on than you'll often hear people say about this. If you go back and look, the Psalms, like all of your Old Testament, except a very few portions, were written in Hebrew. And if you look at the Hebrew verb in verse 18, that's a verb that normally is translated as to take or to receive. But even in the Old Testament, in fact, there are some times where the text just demands that you actually translate that verb as give. For instance, when Rachel tells Jacob to go get a sheep from the flock or a goat from the flock that she can prepare, she says, receive for me, take for me a goat from the flock. But in the context, clearly he's supposed to take it from the flock and then go and give it to her. The taking and the giving are part of a single action. And based on my count this week, there are 12 cases in the Old Testament you have to translate the verb that way. So when Paul translates it as give, he's not sort of way out there. It's an entirely legitimate thing. Even further, by the time of Jesus and then the time of Paul, most ordinary Jews couldn't really handle Hebrew very well. Hebrew had become just a liturgical language, probably not a whole lot better than you all trying to do worship in Latin. And so for that reason... The text was always translated into Aramaic on the fly. These translations were later written down for us in what scholars call the Targums. And in the Targum for this psalm, in fact, the Aramaic translation particularly says, gave gifts to men. So when Paul goes and talks about this and quotes it as Christ giving gifts to men, he's not making some new interpretation. He's not out off on his own. He's doing something that was always there in the psalm, was an entirely current understanding of the text in his day. And in fact, if you look at it really closely, it's just all part of one analogy because here's what's going on. When an ancient king conquered a land and then he returned That king received tribute. He received gifts from the conquered land. And then he turned around and he distributed those gifts among his soldiers. And so the receiving and the giving were part of a single activity in the case of a conquering king in a a victory procession. And that's what Paul's talking about here is Christ's victory procession. And so he's both received gifts and he's giving gifts to his followers. 
In fact, the Jews would typically use Psalm 68 as part of the celebration of Pentecost that Moses had received the law from God and then gave it to the people. Well, Paul goes and applies that to Christian Pentecost, Acts 2, where Christ received the gift of the Holy Spirit and then gave it to his followers. So when Paul translates this as gave gifts to men, he's not out there doing something wild or radical. He's working exactly in what the psalm has always meant, just pulling out the fullness of its implications for us, that Christ gave gifts to his people when he ascended up to heaven. And this also helps us understand verse 9. If you look at verse 9 and Paul says, well, what does that mean except that he might have descended? It's easy to read he descended and think Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. And it's not that Paul would disagree with that, but that's not what he means here. The descended is just the counterpart to ascended. He said Christ ascended from earth to heaven in his resurrection and ascension. And so the descending is Christ's incarnation. For Christ having become man then suffered and died on a cross, buried under the power of death for a time, but then raised from the dead on the third day, ascended up into heaven to sit at the right hand of God. And all of this leads to question number one. Question number one for us today, do you know that Jesus? The Jesus who was God himself, who is God himself, who became incarnate as a man, who literally died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and rules at the right hand of God the Father. The Bible insists that's who Jesus is. No mere myth, no mere cultural system, no mere ethical system, no mere style of culture or worship that he is God incarnate, died and risen from the dead to save us from our sins. And the Bible says you can know him. You can know him just as well as we know each other. So question number one, do you? If you don't, nothing else we're going to say this morning is going to make any sense. Stop here. We would love nothing more than to help you understand how you know Jesus. If you don't, find me after the service. If you're at another one of our sites, find the worship leader. If, if you want to call a friend who's a Christian after church today and say, I want to know how to know Jesus. If none of that and you don't know who to call, call the church office. We would love nothing more than to help you answer that question, do I know him? Do I know Jesus in that saving grace that's the same for all believers? And if we do, Paul says here in verse seven, that in fact, Christ gives everyone who has known him and received that saving grace a specific serving grace, a spiritual gift that God has given us to help build up the church. So if you look now at verse 11, Paul gives a partial list. Verse 11, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Now these are really specific terms the way Paul uses them. Apostles is the term for the people whom Christ himself directly commissioned to be able to write scripture. So it really means Paul himself, the 12 apostles, James, the brother of Christ, and at most maybe one or two more. And the term prophets means those in the Old Testament who could stand there and speak and say, thus declares the Lord and I am adding to God's word. Those were always very particular and individual roles, never that of every person, either in Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church. And in fact, Paul brooks them together 
Back in Ephesians, our book, chapter 2, if you look back at verse 20 of chapter 2, Paul talks about the prophets and the apostles together the foundation of the church. And that's why we understand because the foundation of the church, the word of God has already been laid, that these two are roles that we don't expect to continue today. That said, verse 7 just said every one of us has a spiritual gift. Because if you look at the rest of this list, the evangelists and the teachers and the shepherds, those roles clearly do still come today. In fact, if you look at it, shepherds and teachers, that's just the general role for what we call a pastor. That's the New Testament's usual words for pastors. In fact, evangelists are just those who have a particular gift at helping people find out about Jesus and meet him and know who he is. And so Paul, when he's talking about this list in verse 11, we want to understand he's not being exhaustive. He's just giving us examples. In fact, there are five lists like this in our New Testament, lists of spiritual gifts. None of them have the same list of things. And what that probably tells us is, in fact, none of the five is trying to give us a full list. If you add all of them up, you get 20 spiritual gifts, and that may not be the whole number. Each time, Paul's just given us some examples. And when he gives us these examples, it encourages us to ask question number two, what are my spiritual gifts? Where has God made me particularly to serve the church? And if you can identify what those are, it makes for an easy, joyful, wonderful service. When you get to serve in the area that is your gifting, you just find yourself thinking, I was made for this. Now, you could serve in other areas, but you always feel the difficulty. I mean, if you're a blender and you're trying to fry an egg, you're going to find it just be a really frustrating experience. But if you're a blender and you get asked to chop stuff up, you're going to go, I was made for this. What are your gifts? Where has God gifted you to serve in the church? Now, if you know, hang on for questions three and four in a moment. If you don't know, we'd love to help you figure that out. And by the end, hopefully, of of our sermon this morning, I'll give some practical steps to take towards doing that. Now, quickly, if that's the point of point one, Christ has given us each gift. That's what he's given. It leads us immediately to question number two, why has he given it to us? And you see that in verses 12 to 14 in our passage. And here's the key point out of this. Key point number two out of verses 12 to 14, our gifts are not given us for us. Let me say that again. Our gifts are not given to us for us. Quite the opposite. What does he say in verse 12? Look at it. He says, to prepare God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up. In other words, we are given our gifts not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of God's broader church. We are supposed to use our gifts for the good of the whole church of others, not just for our own. And to sort of cement that image in us, Paul gives us two options, what we looked at already, verse 13. Here's the image of maturity as a church. We all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what we preached on last week, verses 1 to 6. So that um, we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In the ESV translation that you heard Lauren read, it says we could become a mature man. Now, given that Paul's just been talking about the body of Christ, what he means not here is like, be manly. He means that the church as a whole 
becomes the mature image of Christ that it ought to be. It's a very corporate thing. We could become, in Christ together, everything God made us to be, everything we want to be. Or verse 14, there's an alternative. Here's the alternative. We could instead, and now Paul seems to be talking individually, be like little children, tossed and thrown about by the waves. Now, don't think Matthew 19, the wonderful image of Christ saying, let the children come to me like a peaceful child sitting on Christ's lap. This is the other side. Think the two or four-year-old who is mercurial and is always ready to go off in a tantrum and blow up at the tiniest little provocation where you walk on toe tips around your own child because you never know what's going to happen. That's the image here. It's the person who whichever sermon he or she has heard last totally flips what they believe. Whatever blog post they have read totally leads them to the warpath. It's a lack of temperance, a tendency to just go nuts on anything. And in that, Paul says, that's the alternative. And something interesting, why did Paul pick these five gifts to list in verse 11? If he's got an arsenal of 20 at least that he could have listed, one of the questions we always want to ask when reading the Bible is, why did he pick the ones that go in this list? And if you look at these five, we can't always tell, but on this one, it seems that what ties these five examples together is they're all about teaching. They're all about correct belief because Christians do believe some things and not believe other things. And it's the lack of understanding the scripture well that leads us to be these infants who are tossed about by every wave. And if you, if you have not kept up with the church globally, outside of our own context, you may not know this, but the, the global church is a perfect example of this. The story of the past few decades in overseas global missions has been the story of a flood of people coming to Christ, immediately followed by a flood of cults and a flood of false doctrine and false teaching. And it's really, it shapes part of how we need to think about missions in our own moment it's not just, hey, sin bodies, we need bodies. The global church, the majority world church has tons of bodies. What it needs is people who can teach and train in the fullness of Christian belief. Because that's what Paul sees that protects us from being little children. And so question number three, question number three, have we been taught well? And we might personalize that, have I been taught well? What might that mean? Might it mean that I need to lean in and actually be part of adult education to learn more about my faith? Might it mean that I need to be part of a community group where I really am discipled in the truths of the scripture? Might it mean that I really need to start studying my Bible and really dealing with and wrestling with the hard questions that it puts before me? Question number three, have I been taught well? And that leads us right back to the fundamental question of the whole passage, which is, are we going to choose to be immature or mature in Christ? Are we going to be a spiritual Uncle Rico? Or are we going to be the fullness of the image of Christ? I dearly hope you'll pick the latter. I dearly hope I will. But if we look at ourselves, honestly, don't we have to admit that at best we're a mix of them, both individually and as our church? And so as we come to this passage let me ask one more question. What, what does it mean to really grow up to, as a church together, become the fullness of the body of Christ? We'll look at verse 12 one more time. 
Verse 12 makes it clear that we are all given our gifts for the sake of the building of the body of Christ. It says to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now please understand the word saints means all Christians who have come to Jesus. And so Paul's image of a flourishing church, of a church stepping into maturity, is not the image of, hey, the pastors do all the work. It's not the image of the pastors and the staff do all the work. It's not the image of the pastors and the staff and the leadership. Our elders, deacons, and board of women do all the work. All of those folks are to train and equip all of us, God's people, to do the work of ministry. A church only achieves this image of what we ought to be when all of us, every one of us, is using our spiritual gift to the building up of the body. So here's question four, and it's the nosy one. Are you? Are you working with your own spiritual gifts to build up this body of Christ, this local church? Um, And I want to relate this very particularly to our moment as a church. We are in this regathering stage, and you hear and feel, and I do again and again, this desire of, I want to get things back to normal. Now, please understand, back to normal as in 18 months ago means hundreds of people serving in our church in roles that need to be rebuilt. But I don't want to just get back to normal. That's too small a vision for what Paul's presenting here. Um, If you were to have surveyed all of our ministry directors pre-pandemic 18 months ago and said, what is the biggest thing holding this church's ministry back? Every one of them would have said a lack of people to volunteer and serve. Because as best we could figure it out in our church, about half of the people who came to our church came, attended, took something, and left and never served in any way, shape, or form. And the image of here, the image we want to close with in this, is kind of like that of a bus. If you think of the average bus, tour bus, circulating bus, whatever, you got the bus driver driving along. You maybe have a couple people back at the motor pool who fix it if it breaks down. And then most everybody who gets on the bus just sits there and lets it take them somewhere. Maybe a few particularly kind or guilty individuals help load and unload the bus afterwards. Most people don't even do that. They just sit there and wait for it to do something for them. And the average church is kind of like a bus. And I dare say we've been kind of like a bus for way too long. That's not Paul's image. We aren't gonna, we're running out of sermon runway. We're not going to go to 1 Corinthians 12, which Paul talks about the same things. But he says the church is a body, not a bus. So where is God calling you and me to use our gifts in the service of God's church? Now, if you don't know how to do that, five immediate steps you could take to start pursuing it. Number one, when you leave this morning... Go to the Welcome Center before you leave. If you're at a McLean site, there is a tablet preloaded to a form connecting to our database, which can help you think about what are all the places we need somebody to serve. Because y'all, we need people to serve this summer, and we need people to serve in the fall. This summer, there are things that are going to break next week if more people don't actually start serving our church. But by the fall, there are all sorts of things we want to bring back fully online that we can't do unless there are more people serving in our church. Now, if you're at our Fairfax site, there's no tablet waiting there for you, but there's a big poster with a QR code. Scan it. It'll take you right to the right place to the same form. So one, head to the Welcome Center. Two, head to the website. 
If you go to our church website and enter Sunday service teams in the search box, the first link it brings up is going to be the same connection in our church database, not just about how could you serve on Sunday, but through the whole week, where might we put our gifts to work? Now, third, if neither of those is working, talk to your community group leader. Go to your community group leader and say, I feel the Lord calling me to serve a little bit more and I want to do it. Let's think about where I can. Fourth, just step one step further into whatever you already do at the church. If you go to adult ed, consider teaching once. If you come to the worship service, consider ushering or being a greeter. If you're part of a community group leader, consider stepping up to actually be a leader, not just attending your group. Just whatever you're already part of in the church, consider taking just one step further. And then fifth, if none of that works, maybe because you say, well, that's the problem. Question two, I don't know what my gifts are. Call the church or contact the church. You can call us. If you're at the McLean site, ask for Ashley. If you're at the Fairfax site, ask for Chloe. Or you can email them, Ashley or Chloe at capitalpres.org. And just say, I'm not sure I even know my gifts or where to serve. Help me think about this. We'd love to help you think about it. Here's the call. Get on the bus. But don't get on the bus to ride. Get on the bus to help make things go. Because too long we've been willing to be passive, not to be this image. Paul says real maturity, growing up together into the body of Christ, is only going to happen when we all pursue Christ together using our gifts with everything that's in us. So let's pray you'd help us do that. God, our Father, we come to this text from Ephesians and we pray that it would challenge us. We pray that you would move us into the right things you would have us do for your glory, for the good of our church. Help us to do that with no guilt, but with every bit of excitement to share the good news and become everything we could and should be together. We pray that and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.